Welcome to the Do Life Better podcast, where we believe that you get to create who you have been and who you become, and that it's often the smallest changes and actions that make the biggest difference. I'm your host, Dave Jorner, and each week I will bring you the best guests, tips, and messages to inspire and help you and me do life even better. Thank you for joining me today. Now, let's get started. Hi friends and thank you for choosing to spend some time with me today and if this is your very first time listening to the Do Life Better podcast, thank you very much for tuning in. Maybe you've come to us today because of today's guest who is Dr. Joe Lukens or maybe you are a family member or a friend or a colleague or maybe you are Joe's hairdresser. Whatever brought you to this episode today, thank you very much. You're very welcome to join us here in our Do Life Better community. And of course, for all the long-term listeners, yes, you out there, I know this sounds a little bit corny, a little bit cliched, but if I can for a second, bear with me, it really does actually fill my heart with joy. When I see the ratings go up, when I see the reviews come in, when you send me emails, when even just when I see the little download numbers tick over or the ratings go up, it really does bring me a great sense of joy and fulfillment to know that there's a whole bunch of you out there who continually choose to come back to the Do Life Better podcast to share these messages with your friends and your family. So again, if you're new, if you've been here forever, either way, thank you very much. I'm incredibly grateful to spend this time with you today as we together try to do our life and even just today that little bit better so that we can be a bit happier and healthier in our everyday lives. As you may have noticed, today's episode is a bit longer, and that is because, I must confess, I was geeking out a lot uh, in this chat with Dr. Joe Lukens. And as I edited this episode, I really did try to cut it back to keep it under the hour. But there's so many golden nuggets in here. I didn't know what to leave out. So it's pretty much all there for you. And we could have even gone for two hours, I think, because there's so much good stuff that we didn't even get to yet. But I do really highly recommend that you get onto her book when it's released. All the details will be in the show notes and I'll even post on social media when the book is released. Just so you know, though, it's called The Elite Think like an athlete, succeed like a champion. Now, our guest today, Dr. Joanne Lukens, spends her day inside the heads of individuals, teams, and organizations, seeking to understand what makes them tick and assisting them to reach their potential. A psychological Indiana Jones, she describes it as a truly fascinating career that she is grateful for every day. She holds a PhD in psychology, has over 25 years experience and a breadth of knowledge in the sport, organizational and educational domains. She delivers programs in resilience and expert performance for the Australian Defence Force. And Joe has worked with outstanding professionals and elite athletes throughout her career, including the North Queensland Cowboys and Townsville Fire. And all this gives her a unique insight into the world of success. She has been acknowledged as an expert in her field, been awarded an outstanding alumni by James Cook University for her achievements. Joe is sought after as a presenter, interventionist, and for her expertise in the media space. So please do tag Joe in, take a screenshot of this episode, or even a photo of whatever it is you're doing right now as you listen. Put it up on your Instagram stories, tag Joe at D-R underscore J-O-L-U-K-I-N-S. That's at Dr underscore Joe underscore L-U-K-I-N-S. Of course, tag me into at Dave Jorner and at Do Love Better Podcast. Now, just before we dive in, 
I need to let you know the Skype connection wasn't great. I am working on how we can improve the audio quality for this podcast for you. So the Skype connection wasn't that great at the start because a bit of behind the scenes information for you here. I really like to use the video connection when we're doing the Skype interviews because I feel that helps me and the guests create a much deeper sense of rapport between us, which helps the conversation flow a lot more smoothly. However, because of some glitches early on, we ditched the video, went straight to audio. So there are some glitches at the start. I apologize about that. It does clear itself up later in the episode and also my dog Bailey he gets involved in the conversation too later on because I think he wants to go outside for a bit of a run but anyways all that aside if you do bear with this episode as I said before I know it's a longer one you might need to split it over a couple more days or whatever but you will get a lot of value a lot of benefit out of this episode I know that I certainly did we go on to talk about resilience in difficult times like the Townsville floods right now, for example, how self-esteem affects our outlook on winning and losing, the psychology of backing up after a grand final win, how athletes reframe their emotions before the big moments and how you can do the same for your big moments in your life, the importance of creativity and innovation, embracing the suck and the importance of focusing on your purpose and life balance BS and so much more. I know you're going to really enjoy this episode with Joe today. So for now, Let me introduce you to Dr. Joe Lukens. Hi, Joe. Thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. And um, particularly thank you for giving your time now because being in Townsville yourself, at the time of this recording, Townsville has, well, in your own words, Joe, Townsville's quite soggy at the moment with a huge amount of rain recently. And everyone down here in Brisbane have been talking about how Townsville's been going and further out west and everything. And I know that you have a lot of work in the resilience area. Yes. Um, experience there. And that must be, with all this hardship, with all this difficulty happening at the moment, your training in resilience must be coming in quite handy. Well, it has been useful, I must say, because as you as you mentioned, the, the devastation across Townsville has just been heartbreaking for so many people. So um, there's so many things that have come out from this event and, and so much tragedy for people. But I think what, what's also been really evident is the character of people. And when people are tested, you know, they really, they really come to the fore. And, and we've seen qualities across the community of compassion and caring for each other and looking after each other and and respect for the military and all of the you know the emergency services personnel who are looking out for us and and you know as a community I think it's difficult at the moment because some people are still knee deep in mud but other you know I think what we'll learn about ourselves as a community moving forward um, is how important people are to each other and 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 our resilience and and I think we'll be a stronger community down the track for having gone through a challenge such as this. Oh, for sure. I remember when the floods happened in Brisbane recently, there Mm -hmm. was the Mud Army. Yes. And my friends and I, we went out and we were part of that and we were in the back of these big pickup trucks putting some of the old furniture from the houses into the trucks and it was just this sign of, um, as you said, just the community really coming together. And from such tragedy, there was uh, so much selflessness and, and so much compassion. Yes. Um, and a lot of people who weren't affected just felt um, just this need to really give. Um, so there must be a lot of those signs and stories happening, as you said, around the community there as well. Yes, yes. I mean, we're, we're certainly seeing that. And I think, I think one of the other things that happens is 
um, kindness and altruistic behaviour is such a, a two-way street. You know, obviously the person that you go in and help gains so much benefit from it and feeling that support. And I think it's also important to recognise that when you are the person giving the kindness, um, there's a there's a feeling that comes back from that. We know that actually altruistic behaviour is one of the biggest predictors of happiness. So, you know, that, that feeling that you can do something for others is you know, that's where you, you, you really get those those benefits yourself as well. So it's um, it's really good across the community, those those acts of kindness, whether there's something small or something large, we know that even in a difficult time it can it can bring about some feeling of satisfaction in knowing that you that you helped someone and made a difference. Oh absolutely. And knowing that some of our long term fans are from Townsville, um, what could be just quickly, what could be some key things? Uh, people can do in tragedies such as this to really help them move forward in a resilient way? Well, I think I think there's a range of things and it will really depend on people's exposure and, and what actually happened for them. But I think to be kind to yourself is the starting point because I think what happens for so many people, so many people are grieving at the moment because they've had loss. And whether that be loss of possessions, whether it's uh, people have lost income, people, you know, the, the, the range of loss for people, you know, and, and, and you know, you hear the stories all the time, people saying, you know, it's a fridge, it's a freezer, I can replace it, but it's the photographs, it's the, it's, I heard someone talking today about their floorboards, you know, their 100-year-old floorboards oh, that wow. are now destroyed, you know, so there's there's loss in lots of different ways. And I, and I think that being kind to yourself and understanding that grief takes many forms and, if you're feeling sad, to feel sad. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling angry, you know, all of those emotions are normal and it's part of the grief process. So one of the one of the challenges with grief is, you know, you, you certainly don't have to like it. That No one ever likes grief when they're going through it. Yet if you can accept that that's what you're going through, that then allows you to move forward. I'm always saying to people, you know, acceptance is the key. And, and I know we're talking about the floods here, but if we were talking about athletes and they've just lost a game or something like that you don't have to like it but if you can accept what's happened to you it gives you the space to move forward because if you don't accept it then you get stuck in denial and you, and you don't move anywhere so I think that's one of the first things for all of us is to acknowledge the grief to know that there'll be days we'll be feeling sad to know that the times of you know feeling upset will slow you down and and you might be, you know, a little more agitated than normal or a little bit snappier with your friends or with your family than, than you normally are and a, a little bit of kindness around that to yourself and to others is really important. And uh, this episode will be released two days after we, uh, three days after we talk today, Joe. So for all of our listeners up in towns, we just know that the Do Love Better family are thinking of you and um, and, and wishing all the very best for everyone who's um, struggling up there at the moment. But uh, Joe, thank you for that connection you just had then between you know, acceptance and the, the athletes, the elite athletes, because I am really excited about talking to you today about your vast experience of working with elite athletes, particularly in the lead up to the release of your book. Um, and I hope I've got this right. It's called The Elite, Think Like an Athlete, Succeed Like a Champion. And, yes, um, that's right. That's the title. Thank you. And before you, you mentioned that, you'll be sending me a copy. Oh, that made my day, Joe. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, isn't that nice? Thank <laughs> you. Speaking of elite athletes, firstly, um, I'm actually really quite excited because tonight we're going to be going to um, the Brisbane Heat, to the 
big bash league and my two sons my youngest is five my eldest is eight they've been selected to actually go out onto the field tonight before the game to meet the players shake their hand get their hat and so on and we are a little bit worried about how they're going to go because it is the end of their first full week at school my youngest is just starting prep so he's going to be exhausted so hopefully he will be able to do the right thing in front of thousands of people out there tonight but just that idea of them being able to meet these elite athletes out in the field, you know, in front of so many people is such a massive moment for them, one that they're going to remember, I'd imagine, for quite a long time. And um, you know, I've always wanted to learn so much from elite athletes you know, in, in terms of their internal strength, um, their, how driven they are. And... I love the concept of your book because it's all about taking what we can learn from elite athletes and instilling that in our everyday life. And I know that I'll be having conversations with my sons tonight and well after about their about you know, the opportunity that they get tonight. You know, just about what brings what enabled these athletes, the cricketers, to be able to get to where they are as a way to inspire my sons. So Firstly, Joe, how did you get involved in working with elite athletes? How did that come about? Well, it was an interesting um, journey for me, actually, and I, and I think sometimes that's one of the things with life that doesn't quite go as you expect. So mm. I actually grew up not far from you. I actually grew up on the Sunshine Coast oh, really? and, and went to school there many years ago. And when I went and saw the guidance officer at school and I had an interest in working in psychology and studying in psychology, the guidance officer looked up the book, I didn't look up the book, and said, you need to go to Townsville. And at the time, at the time, psychology was only taught as a Bachelor of Psychology in Townsville. And, and there was a misread of the book and didn't realise that I could have gone to Brisbane and done a Bachelor of Arts. Oh, wow. So that was so so it was one of those moments where and you know back in back in the eighties we didn't we didn't sort of question the decisions that teachers made. So off to Townsville I went. I, I discovered halfway into my degree I could have done it in Brisbane. But anyway, it was one of those fantastic moments because I graduated and so I was based in the north and um, in uh, not long after I finished finished my studies and my initial um, honours degree was actually looking at children in sport and I was really interested in the effects of sporting performance, uh, self-esteem and the reasons and, and it's interesting because your children are, are virtually the age of the children I was interviewing back when I did my honours oh, research wow. because I wanted to try and understand whether children with high or low self-esteem, whether that made a difference to the way they explained their performance in sport. So say, for example, if you had a child with high self-esteem and they were successful, did that make a difference in terms of how they explained it? And it turned out that it did. Really? So, yes, so children with, so what it, would, what it found was that children with high self-esteem, let's say they won, um, they would say, that's because I'm awesome. You know, and if you had a child with low self-esteem and you said, you know, can you tell me about a time when you've won? And they might say yes and say, well, why did that happen? And they'd say, oh, I was just really lucky that day or the other kids I was up against, they weren't that good. So there was a very clear difference in the ways that they were explaining it. And then when you looked at disappointment, so can you remember a time when you didn't do very well, why did that happen? The children with high self-esteem would say, oh, gee, I was really unlucky on that day. And the children with low self-esteem would say, oh, that's because I'm not that good. So it was a really interesting study for me at that time because one of the other things that you might have noticed there when I was describing the scenarios that I described to the children, I talked about them winning or losing and you might think, oh, that's a, that's a funny way to describe it because the other thing I was interested in at that time is whether the children could differentiate between 
a win and a loss in terms of whether that was a, a disappointing outcome or whether that was a preferred outcome. And what we found was the younger children struggled with that. They, For them, if you won, it was good. And if you lost, it was bad. It was very, very clear cut. Whereas the, the children that were a little bit older and they were about 10, they, they were able to differentiate between the fact that you can sometimes win something, but it's maybe not necessarily that satisfying an outcome or that you might not win, but that might be a satisfying outcome for you because maybe you tried your best or you got a PB or whatever it was. Mm. So there was that differentiation for the children as well. So that was where my research in sport originally started was in in my honours degree. And then I was working up here um, in Townsville and I was working at the university and working with a few different people. And then this team came to town and you might know them, they were the North Queensland Cowboys. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the Cowboys came to town and uh, they didn't have a psychologist work with them in their very first year, but I started with them in their second year and I've been with them ever since. So that's been a really, uh, I've been very grateful for that journey because, you know, to, like you said, to get that snapshot into the lives of the athletes and particularly to do it over 20 years, you know, you see so many things and hear so many things and you see and meet so many great people. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very rare window into what it is to be an elite athlete. And I know many people have, you know, expectations about what that might be. I don't necessarily see the more challenging uh, part of that road. So um, I, started with, I started with the Cowboys in 1996. And then through my teaching at JCU as well, um, I was teaching in the psychology department and then I moved across because they started up the Institute of Sport and Exercise Science. So I've taught in their sports psychology program since that began. So it's interesting because if if I reflect back on my career and think about the fact that I kind of came here by accident, I wasn't mm. actually supposed to be here. If we'd read if we'd read the, the QTAC book as as you know, with all the information that was there, I would have gone to Brisbane. But the reality, the reality is, for me, the opportunity was here in the north. Because for me, at the time, as a young woman in her twenties, you know, working in elite sport, particularly elite elite male sport, you know, that wasn't the norm back then. So, and then I guess what's happened then is opportunities have 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 developed further since then. So I also uh, support the Townsville Fire, who are in the Women's National Basketball League team, and we've, um, you know, they're there is nothing more enjoyable for a sports psychologist than to get to sit on the bench of a team when they're winning a national grand final. And oh, we've, yeah. managed, we've managed to do that three times now. Yeah. So we have also been to a grand final where we didn't win it and there's, that's a fairly bittersweet place to be. So, um, But, you know, I mean, always very grateful for those opportunities because, as you say, the, the, uh, the life of the elite athlete is a uh, is a unique one, and so there's 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 much that we can we can learn from that. And you know, your son stepping out there this evening will be they'll remember that forever. Mm. You know, even even your son who's five, he will remember. Well, there'll probably be a thousand photos too, I would imagine. But <laughs> but you yes. know, it, it is it's one of those once in a lifetime opportunities. Yeah. And and the elite athletes that I've worked with, you know, one of the things we often talk about is the importance of gratitude, and they are so grateful for those that support them, and they know that when those kids meet them, they are meeting their their idols. So it's really important that they take great responsibility around that role because their level of influence over our children is is really important. Oh, for sure. And one of the things that I talk to my sons about a lot is in terms of sport and, and life in general, but particularly in terms of sport, yes, skill and fitness is massive. It's, it's a big factor, obviously, to how successful you are. And then the mind game 
is incredibly important. Your psychology, your your will to persist, to keep on going is crucial. And um, as a lot of the listeners will be aware of, I ran the Gold Coast Marathon last year as a way to well, to prove lots of things to myself, but also to show my sons that, yes, you can do hard things. And, you know, we've spoken, I've spoken to them lots and lots about that as well. But in terms of the percentage, I suppose, you know, like you hear all these different quotes about, you know, for baseball, for example, it's what, 8% skill, 92% mind game or something like that. In your experience, Joe, in your work, particularly, you know, sitting on the bench during a grand final, national grand final game, how much does the psychology of a player really affect their ability to step up and use their skill, but not only use their skill, but even go beyond what their skill level says they really should be able to achieve? So uh, someone once uh, put it to me that at the start of the season, there's a lot of preparation work to be done. You might have a new team coming together. There's new moves and particular plays that a team might be working on. Players may be coming back from having had a break and their fitness may not be quite what it was. And so there's a lot of, uh, I guess, the percentage of time being spent within the sport on all of the physical side of things and the tactical sides of things. Mm. By the time you get a team to the grand final, and if we look at, you know, sports this weekend, the Adelaide Lightning are taking on the Canberra Cat- Capitals in the in the WNBL grand final. By the mm-hmm. time you get to this stage of the season, the athletes are all fit. Mm-hmm. They've learnt their drills. They've learnt their skills. They know the moves and so forth. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to think about that so much. However, where their focus tends to turn to, and this I think is is the real battle between teams when you're getting to something like a grand final, mm. is to keep your head in the game. So I I actually think that you need to, your mental skills are like your physical skills. They're not just something you pull out for a grand final. So you need to be working on those consistently through your season or or you know through through your career as an athlete. Um, I do think, though, that when it gets to those crunch games, so it's when you go to a grand final or when you step up and you play for your state Mm -hmm. or you play for your country, Mm. that's when there's greater potential then for distraction and for you to uh, pull on your mental reserves there to put things into perspective. Because I often say to athletes, you know, if it's the grand final and you're in the, you know, it's the second quarter and your level scores, that is not. You do not want your head at that point in time to be standing in confetti and you know, throwing champagne all over yourself. So oh, you know sure. you can you can get you can get ahead of yourself. But it, you know, we you and I can sit here and say, yeah, well, of course that's how that would be. Very challenging though when you're an athlete and mm. you've got all of that potential distraction going on. So I do think mentally athletes are tested more in those big moments. You know, you go to the Olympics, you know, and you've still got to just perform exactly as you were doing in the way that got you there in the first place. Absolutely. And even when you were mentioning before about you know, the big grand final games, and you reminded me that some seasons, and it's happened, it seems to me that it happens so many times, you get a team who gets to the grand final one year, either they win it or they don't, but then the next year they often tank. They often end up towards the bottom of the ladder. It happens in cricket, it happens in football, it happens in so many different sports. Like that, surely that must be a psychological game. But would that be true? Oh, yes, absolutely. There's, there's no doubt that that can have a strong impact on a team because one of the things that I've seen, and I guess having seen it with the fire, because the fire 
you know, won consecutive grand finals, in fact, won three mm-hmm. in a row. Um, and the, the challenge when you're on top is that everyone is chasing you. Everyone wants to do it the way you did it. So you mm-hmm. couldn't win a grand final, say, last year and reasonably expect to come out this year and do it exactly the same way and win the grand, grand final again. It won't happen because... Mm-hmm. Everyone has watched everything you do and they are chasing after you. So the challenge, um, and that was one of the things that Claudia Brassard, our coach here at the fire, was able to do last year because she had gone from being an assistant coach to being our head coach. And the job of the coach is, is that they've got to reinvent the team and they've got to reinvent what's going on. Um, they've got to continually be creative and find new ways because everyone's chasing your tail. And, and there's a lot of pressure on teams when you have been successful. And I think that's one of the important things to, to remember is that, that challenge of, of being successful and, and it's, it's definitely a mental skill to overcome. Oh, for sure. And so what's it like then for you knowing that um, you said before head coach and in a way I suppose you are also a head coach for the team. Yes. <laughs> Bad yes. joke there, sorry. But um, what's it like then knowing like sitting on the bench in a grand final game knowing that you've played a significant part because obviously the, the mind game of the players is huge. What's it like knowing that you've played a significant part in helping these players individually and as a team not just get to that game, but also show up in the right headspace, uh, maintain the right headspace on court when things are going well and when they're not, uh, and then also in the follow-up afterwards. You know, what's it like being part of that environment? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, it's 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 what everyone you know works towards, and and you know, it's it's being really. I've used the word a few times already. I know being grateful for the opportunity, but I I know that you know when when we're grateful for what we have, mm. um, it it helps us to perform better in all the things that we do. So I think one. I guess my approach as a as someone with a, a background in psychology and having worked with teams to, is is to be mindful of the contribution that you make and and what you can offer. And you know my role particularly. So say with the fire, I, I, I sit on the bench during the games and my, my role is there to give feedback later on to the coaches and so forth about what I've observed and how what we can do better and continually looking at it from that angle. So understanding that you're part of the picture, um, but I think it was Greg Norman who once asked the question about when did a psychologist last win the Open? And I think that's, a, that's a, also a good thing. We need to be humble with these things because certainly we can make a substantial contribution and what we need to remember though is it's the athletes out there performing and that's you know the successes are theirs and um and they they rightly deserve to own that so certainly the opportunity to contribute to the success of a group of athletes is a is a is a wonderful thing to be involved with Oh, it must be. And I've always imagined you know, what it would be like being in the dressing rooms at halftime in a grand final. Like, what do you say? What would a coach say to their team? Because you don't want to say the wrong thing. No, um, no. And you're right. And one of the challenges, I think, when it's a team sport is that you have got so much variability across the room. So, oh, exactly. so in terms of we often talk about an athlete's arousal levels, which is, you know, how much uh, – physiological and psychological elevation they've got and we've all got this sort of ideal performing state that we can place ourselves into to give ourselves the best opportunity to do as well as we can Mm. the challenge is is that you and I could be on the same team and that could be quite variable for us you know I might need to be quite 
calm and considered and, you know, step things through. And you might be quite a pumped up kind of individual that really needs to sort of stand up and clap your hands. And so when you get that variability, the, the coaches have really got to use their mental skills. And I think I think that's a, one of the areas I find fascinating is working with coaches. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's where we, there's some of the lessons there that we can learn outside of sport is it's their ability to read their players. It's it's their levels of emotional intelligence, you know, so their ability to say approach me if I'm on the team and know that they might just need to say a few calming words to me and a few key points about the job at hand and what Joe needs to do and then they might need to, you know, slap you on the back and, and say something else. So it's, it's, it's really um, a challenge for coaches in terms of the repertoire of skills that they need um, to bring out the best in their athletes, which is really what they need to do in addition to being able to say, and this is our strategy and this is how we're going to play the game and this is how we're going to shut them down. My head's spinning right now. I thought of different questions I could ask you because, look, this is one area I've been geeking out on a lot lately, oh, <laughs> um, particularly with my you know, emotional intelligence training and so on because I looked into recently just the idea about decision-making in the heat of the moment for athletes in the middle of the game. So some players are known to make really good decisions in the heat of the moment and other players are known to not make the best decision. Um, So everyone's got the same cues and and the same information, yet some players, it's as if they see more. It's as if they're aware of more or they have the habits or that just that natural instinct. And I kind of looked – I'd love to hear your thoughts about this because I looked into the emotional intelligence side of it. And you know how we have the reward state and the threat state. And when we are in that state of threat, then our decision-making abilities uh, are lessened. we are less open to positive risk-taking and apparently our peripheral vision is also decreased. Yet when we are in a reward state, our peripheral vision is is wider so we can see more opportunities for decision-making. We are more open to positive risk-taking. We also make better decisions. So in, in terms of, as you said before, in a dressing room, there'd be so many different personalities. Some might be listening to meditation music in their headphones. Others might be listening to Screamo or something else to get yes, really yes, fired up. Right. Is there, like, would it be a blanket statement to say that being in a reward state before a game in that positive state would be more effective than that threat state or does it really depend on the player? It will depend on the player because I I think one of the things that's interesting, and I often talk to the students about this, well, I actually talk to the athletes about this as well, I'm thinking about the students that I I, I teach in sport sport and exercise science, Mm. is that you've tapped into a few really important parts there and the emotional intelligence, as you know, with all your expertise in that area is really critical because it's our emotions that drive behaviour. You know, all the things that all the decisions we make, the things that we do comes from where we are feeling and and, and how we're thinking about those things. And one of the challenges with it is that notion of the threat state or the emotional state or, or, you know, being open to, to the experiences is that that's all perception. You know, like you said, we could all see the same cues, yet Mm. we choose to interpret it differently. And the example I often give, if I can step a little bit out of the sporting realm, but probably one that you will will appreciate given that you have little people in your house, is that I have two sons and they are four years apart. And a few years ago, we were at one of the theme parks on the Gold Coast and my youngest was finally tall enough to go on the ride. He'd been wanting to go on for years, that he'd gone to the theme park before and hadn't been allowed on it because he was too short and his brother went on it and so forth. 
And there we were standing on, it was the giant drop was the ride. And he and I were both standing in the queue ready to go on it. And I'm, I'm okay with, with roller coaster rides, much better than my husband who was off holding the bags pretending to be helpful. Um, <laughs> but, it was, but it was interesting because I often give the example. So there we were standing in the line about to go on a roller coaster ride. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'd had some physiological measures there that day, if you'd had a heart rate monitor, if you'd been taking our blood pressure, if you've been looking at our pupil dilation, at how much we were sweating and so forth, and all you had in front of you was the data, it would probably look similar. Hearts were racing, pupils dilated, you know, mm. blood pumping and all the rest of it. The reality is is that I was standing there thinking things like, oh, gee, what's this going to be like? I hope I survive it. And my then eight-year-old was having the best day of his life. So two people in exactly the same situation with exactly the same physiological response probably. I mean, I don't know. We didn't actually measure it. But mm-hmm. it would have been, there was certainly an elevation for both of us, but it was our interpretation that was different. Oh, and that's oh. what made our experience so different. And I often say to athletes who are approaching a grand final or – they're stepping up into the next level of competition. They're going from, even if it's the local Townsville competition, going up into the the North Queensland team or something like that, or you might have one of your Brisbane teams who are then being picked in a regional team, something like that, and they step up and they suddenly think, oh, I feel nervous, I feel anxious about, about this thing that I'm doing. And I often say to people, well, maybe the nerves that you're experiencing is just excitement in disguise. Oh, Absolutely. Because the only difference is, and if I come back to Dylan and I being on the on the roller coaster, is, you know, if he says, this is awesome, I'm having a great time, then he approaches it with so much openness, like you say. Now, it's interesting because on that particular day, I think we probably saw similar things. Um, but in terms of the experience, <laughs> and, I, and I have to confess, I, I actually do like roller coasters and we did go back on it again later in the day. Yeah. Um, but I, I know I would have had far more trepidation about what we were doing than he did. And so I often say to people, you know, it's excitement in disguise. There's a there's a lovely story about Kathy Freeman from the Sydney Olympics in 2000 uh, where she talked about in an interview that when she was there, and I don't know if you recall, she, was, she had the 400 metres mm-hmm. and it was one of the closing events and, um, you know, there was all that pressure on her to to not only to perform but to win a gold medal mm-hmm. at her home Olympics. And she talked about in an interview that, just before sort of stepping onto the blocks, she felt the butterflies in her stomach. Now, butterflies in your stomach is a very common experience for many, many athletes and many of us. You know, you might be getting up to do some public speaking or you might be going and talking to someone you haven't spoken to before or you might have a difficult conversation to make and Mm. butterflies are in your stomach. And it's very easy when that happens to perhaps go down a path of worry. Oh, gee, I don't feel very good. I feel worried. I feel sick. Gee, I hope I don't stuff this up. I hope, you know, and all that negative self-talk kind of flows out from us. In the interview that she gave, she what she said was that she felt the butterflies in her stomach and then she thought, that's awesome. Now I'm ready to race. And it, they might not have been quite the words, but it's that, that notion of when you get that feeling of um, – uh, that, that flutter in the stomach, that notice of the physiological activation within your body, that's actually what you need to run fast. That's actually mm-hmm. what you need to perform well. So if you can interpret it in a way that is helpful, and, and one of the key phrases I've used my entire career with anyone that I've worked with is is when you find yourself in a situation, and whether it be a grand final, whether it be a flood situation, 
whether it be you're about to step out and meet your heroes at the cricket, you know, whatever it is that mm. you're going to be, although I imagine for your kids it'll just be excitement. It won't even cross their minds to get anxious about it. <laughs> but maybe, maybe it will for you though. But, <laughs> yep. but, it, but, but it, it probably will. But, you know, yeah. in that instance, sometimes the most useful thing to do is to ask yourself the question and say, well, what's the most helpful thing I can do right now? Mm. What would be the most helpful thing that I could do? What would be the most helpful thing that I could think? And turn your attention to that because that will start to settle you down, start to make you feel better within yourself about what you're doing and what you're thinking. And it will help you then to make choices that are more beneficial in terms of the fact of whatever it is that you're about to do. Yeah, that self-awareness and then that self-management is absolutely crucial. And, and I think I might have even spoken about this before in the podcast too, but that's how I became okay initially speaking in front of people, reframing mm-hmm. that sense of nervousness, turning that into excitement. And, yes. and again, telling myself that, you know, what my body is just getting ready for what's coming next. And yeah, so that's been absolutely key for me too. And so thinking about the book that you've got coming out soon, and yes. you, know, you sent me the chapters earlier and there's so much good stuff here that I'd love to ask you about. Um, in, in fact, talking to you now, it kind of makes me think that maybe I should have ticked that sports psychology box when I was back at uni <laughs> doing my <laughs> undergrad in, sports, in psychology. Anyways, um, there's a couple of, of different topics I'd like to go into if that's okay. Sure. And there's one here that you've got called the Benister Effect. I'd love to hear about that. Okay, so the banister effect. So one of the things when one of the things I was interested to do when I was putting the book together was to really think about not even so much what have I taught athletes, but what have athletes taught me? Because I think that's one of the things that's really important for us mm. um, when we're going through our careers is not just to think about our contribution to others. But, and and I, I very much find that, that I think I have learned far more from the athletes that I've worked with than hopefully I've, hopefully I've helped them as as well. But one of the things that one of the stories that I really love from sport, and I love I love all the stories, but particularly around athletes who overcome adversity. One of the things that I've observed working with the athletes that I work with is those athletes who are able to be creative and innovative in what they do. It mm-hmm. seems to be a key predictor of their success. And I guess we were talking about it earlier when we were talking about, you know, coaches reinventing their teams mm-hmm. and so forth. So so the Bannister effect for me um, is the story of Roger Bannister, who, as as we know, was the first person to break the four-minute mile. And and that story is such an interesting one because at the time, if we if we could take out if we could teleport ourselves back in a in a TARDIS or whatever it would be, back to 1952 um, when he he competed in the Olympic Games in Helsinki and he came fourth in the 1500 metres and he was criticised for his performance at that time. Uh, It wasn't quite where people thought it would be. Now, so that in itself is an interesting situation because we've all received criticism in our lives. And again, it's not so much what happens to us, but it's what we do with it. So he took that criticism and thought, right, well, I'm going to break the four-minute mile. And so worked with his training. Now, now that was at a time when the research at the time and certainly the discussions within sports science, even though it wasn't particularly called that at the time, was the fact that that could never happen, that no human would actually be physically, like it wasn't even something that was anyone would be physically capable of. That's right. So Didn't that, they believe that their hearts would explode or something if they yes, ran that, that, that fast yes, that, that long? Yeah. That's exactly right. They actually thought that it would probably kill someone if they were to try and, and run that fast. Mm. Um, and I think 
my belief is that critical moment for Bannister's success was at somewhere along the way he he must have thought, but what if people can? What if, what if someone is able? And you know, what if what if I'm that person? You know, I mm. think is is what happened. And when you hear the story and and you hear about you know, obviously to to be able to do that comes about from a training regime that allows you to get yourself physically ready to do it. But it's that psychological belief that that you you're capable of doing it, and I love the story behind it because I'd love to know I'd love to know what Bannister would be capable of running, you know, current day if if, if that was ever to happen with all the modern yeah. technology that we have. Yeah. Because you know, the morning that he broke, um, well, sorry, the day that he broke the four minute mile, you know, that morning he went to work, um, and he worked <laughs> as a med- yeah he worked as a medical student at St Mary's Hospital. Um, and so that morning he went to the lab and part of what he did that morning was he sharpened his spikes on the on the lab grindstone and then it was in the evening he just wandered across to Oxford University and and that's where he went out to to set the record and hmm. um, you know there's so many elements of Bannister's story for us to draw upon you know there's you know his self-belief his tenacity his ability to you know come back from a, a a performance that people criticised him for for not being up to standard, and it turned out to be one of the greatest sporting achievements in in living history. So, um, it's one of those. I, I think the lesson to take from that is the importance of creativity and innovation in what you do, and how can you redefine it, and how can we do it differently. And there's a phrase that's often, you know, people shake with fear when you hear it in an organisation. It certainly causes me great concern when I hear it and you start ask someone why they're doing something and they say, well, because that's how we've always done it around yes, here. Yes. You know, and it's, it, it's, you know, and look, if it's a great system and you're getting the results you want, then fantastic, keep doing it. But chances are, and particularly what we see in sport, but what we see in life too is, you know, there's there's always those potentials for for growth and those opportunities to do things differently. Um, and I think that when uh, when athletes, and that's the thing for us to learn, when they find ways to do things differently and they're prepared to experiment, and, of course, what can happen is sometimes we can experiment with things and it doesn't work. You know, it, it, it doesn't quite come out the way we planned it to. Um, and so you're always putting yourself in that position of risk when, you, when you're taking something on. But but having the strategies then to cope with it and learn from it. And it's always about, you know, what is the learning from what it is that I've just done? Did this work? Did this not work? How could I do it better? So I think those are some of the things. And and that's what I love about the Bannister effect is it really highlights for me the importance of creativity for all of us in terms of our, our success. Oh, yeah. And as you mentioned too, that what if thinking which is the chapter beforehand, really, the growth versus fixed mindset idea. Um, but, you know, that what if, what if there is another way? And as you mentioned too, to be able to try something and if it doesn't work, that's okay. What, what can we do next? Um, yes. And then just that idea about success on autopilot. So obviously athletes must have incredible habits so that it's not about motivation. It's simply about the habit so even if they don't feel like it because it's such an ingrained habit it just happens anyway so you know what can we learn about from athletes in terms of the habits well yeah the habits are so important because you know it, it's it's speculated and it's a speculation that we make around 30 to forty thousand decisions every day which is probably why we all get to the end of the day feeling as tired as we do <laughs> exactly and roughly around 40 percent of what we do every day is habit mm. and and i often say to people you know um Habits are great because they save us from having to think. 
Yes. And the other thing I say is that habits are terrible because they save us from having to think. You know, so yeah. if, if you have, if you ha- that's a challenging thing to think about because if your habit is that every morning your alarm goes off and you get up and you go outside and you do some physical activity, most people would look at that and go, well, that's a pretty helpful, beneficial thing to do. Great, keep doing that. If your habit is that every day you get home from work, you sit on the couch with a six-pack of beer and two packets of Tim Tams, um, as pleasurable as that might be doing that as a one-off, if you do that every day, then, you know, that starts to not be helpful for you. So Mm. the challenge for athletes is to put as many of their habits, well, to create as many habits as they can and to essentially put them on autopilot. Because one of the things we know, and many people listening may now be, you know, maybe this is an opportunity for them to stop and have a little bit of a reflect for themselves because we're roughly, what, about five or six weeks post um, start of the year. And, of course, what many people do at the end of a year is they make New Year's resolutions. So usually by now they've either stuck or they haven't stuck. And if you're like most people, they haven't stuck. Um, So, you know, people set these lofty uh, resolutions at the end of the year and then by February they've usually gone out the window. And the reason for that is that to change your behaviour takes a lot of willpower. And the challenge with willpower and self-control is that when we're tired, it's really tricky Mm. to maintain the willpower to go and do some exercise at the end of the day or to choose the healthy salad sandwich lunch rather than the pie or whatever it is. So our willpower is more of a finite source. If it's a habit, though, you actually don't have to think about it so much. Mm. So the biggest challenge for athletes is to turn as many of their behaviours as they can, the ones that are helpful for their sporting performance, to turn those into habits because if you think about it, we do do lots of things on autopilot. So if you think about the day you've had today, whatever your morning routine was in terms of getting up, hopefully you had breakfast, you might have done some physical activity, you probably had a shower, you probably brushed your teeth, you know, all those sorts of things, you would have done them in a particular order. Mm-hmm. And chances are the order you did them in today was the order you did them in yesterday. Was Pretty the order you're... <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right because yeah. do you know what, Dave? You don't want to have to wake up tomorrow morning and go, right, when am I going to brush my teeth? Exactly. Will I do it before breakfast or after breakfast? Will I do it in the shower or out of the shower? Will I hold the toothbrush with my right hand or my left hand? Will I put the toothpaste on from left to right or right to left? I mean, really, you've got enough going on in your day without giving that any consideration. Mm -hmm. The challenge is and the downside to habits is so then you're there brushing your teeth. Let's stick with that example. If we aren't somewhat mindful while we're doing those habits, then it might be a quick 15, 20 seconds, toothbrush in the mouth, freshen up with a bit of toothpaste and on we go. So we don't necessarily brush as well as our dentist would, you know, hope, hope that we do. <laughs> yeah. So you know, that, so there is a, a level of mindfulness that, that's beneficial for us. But if we can create a habit where you stand in the bathroom and use your toothbrush, and if, you, if you're like me, I've got an electric toothbrush that's it really helps. I don't have to think at all because after two minutes it vibrates. So then I know I've been standing there for two minutes and I've brushed, been brushing my teeth long enough. You I'll know, so one I, of them, yeah. Yeah, so you just stand there and do it. So yeah. the challenge for an athlete is for them to spend some time reflecting, considering and planning what will be the habits that will assist me to reach my goals. And they will be things like going to bed on time. 
They will be things like drinking enough water. They will be doing things like getting on the foam roller and doing my stretching, you know, all those sorts of things. There's people are hearing those things are going, oh, yeah, I probably should do that. I probably should go to bed earlier or I should, you know, drink more water or, I sh- yeah, actually I've got a foam roller gathering dust in the lounge room as well, you know, that sort of thing. So the athletes who don't even really have to think about those things, when they can create them on habit, um, then they're much better placed to make sure. To, so two things happen there. They do them and they don't have to think about them. So they're not relying on their willpower or their self-control to do it, which frees up their mind to think about other things that they could be doing. Oh, yeah, and I found this really important for me too. So when I travel for work and and run, you know, three-day programs, for example, my morning routine habit of get up, exercise, all that is so ingrained in me. Like my day just feels wrong if I don't do that. In fact, I kind of get anxious that my day is not going to be as good. I'm not going to make the right decisions. I'm going to be cranky, all of that, if I don't stick to my morning routine. So it causes me more stress not to do it than it does to actually follow through with it even if I'm feeling tired and unmotivated. So I find that by me maintaining my, for example, morning routine habits when times are good and when times are just average type of thing, then when I really need to save my willpower and save my strength for later in the day so I can perform at my peak, then having the morning taken care of already as a habit um, is incredibly important for me. And uh, even like Barack Obama, he spoke about how he had a uniform pretty much that he would wear every day. It's like the same suit, same colours, same colour shirt, same colour tie, because that way it's a couple less decisions he had to make each day so that he could really focus on the important ones. Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't agree with that more because, you know, like I said before, if we are making thirty to 40,000 decisions every day, we don't want to have to think of it, you know, and, and, and that's a good example. Now, that works for him. Maybe it doesn't work for others, but it's about finding what are the things in your life that you know what they are and how can you automate them for yourself so that, you know, think about the last time you got into a car and drove somewhere chances are hopefully you put a seatbelt on mm-hmm. now again that's another one of those behaviors that we do on autopilot it's a helpful behavior we all want to be doing it but you don't want to put a lot of thought into will I put my seatbelt on and you know how am I going to do that and all the rest of it because chances are you've got other things that you want to be thinking about mm-hmm. so it really is and, and, and I agree I, and I think particularly the morning routine like you've identified that's where we set the tone for our day so that's just like you were talking earlier about, you know, what happens when a coach comes into a change room or a dressing room for a grand final. How they set the tone at the start of that conversation is is incredibly important. One, because humans just tend to remember what's, what's said at the start and what's said at the end. That's right. But, you know, when you set the tone for your day, and I'm, I'm very similar, my morning habit sounds very similar to yours, that I really in I really function much much better when I'm able to do my physical activity first thing in the morning Mm. and then after I've done it there's a part of me that thinks well come on Dave throw it at me it doesn't matter what happens now I've done my morning exercise you know so Mm. so I know that it's part of what helps me to feel better within myself and as we know when we feel better within ourselves then we you know we find it easier to make decisions and again we're not drawing on that very crucial willpower because at three o'clock in the afternoon, if there's a vending machine nearby, that's probably when we're going to need to draw on the willpower. Yeah, it just so happens that dessert and evening drinks happens when our willpower is completely depleted. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. We, there's a little acronym that I really love about when you're most vulnerable to break a habit. 
and that's if you meet what's called the HALT acronym, H-A-L-T, yes. yeah. which is hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And then help you if you're if you're all four, then <laughs> it's really tricky. That's right. And some people also add on stressed and sick at the end as well. So yes. HALT. Yes, that's right. And I mean those things all come together, don't they? So we mm. we and the, the the thing with that though is. We don't need to just surrender to things at, say, 3 o'clock in the afternoon and just go, oh, well, that's right, okay, because this is my time, I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm not going to have any willpower. What it means is then we can do a little bit of planning that's around right. the fact that we know that, you know, if you know that it comes 3 o'clock, you're feeling a bit a bit snoozy and you, you might be more likely to eat something you'd prefer not to, then it might be about then making part of the morning habit about packing a, a snack that's going to be helpful for you if you're going to be away from home and, mm. and thinking about, how you can do something maybe a little bit more active at that three o'clock time rather than sort of snoozing at your desk. Mm. Oh, for sure. And that kind of leads into the next one too that struck a chord with me, and that's the one you've called Embrace the Suck. Yes. Um, now, some of the behind-the-scenes work that I need to do, I really don't enjoy <laughs> in yes. terms of like things like bank reconciliation and that type of thing, and I, I it that causes me stress and anxiety, and I really don't enjoy it. In fact, my bookkeeper's probably about to send me an email at any moment just asking me to send through some stuff I need to do. But now I've kind of realized that, hang on, if I've been really fighting against this for the last two years, if it if I've been like hating this for two years but I need to do it, then that's actually my fault for yes. not finding a way to be okay with it. Yes. So what I'm trying to do now is somehow insert something that's that makes it more pleasurable in a way? Like, do I listen to some good music? Do I even have a sneaky glass of wine while I'm doing it? Like, is or do I watch a TV show? Do I do something nice to turn this moment that I really don't like into something that's quite okay? Because if I keep going along and using your term, if I keep finding it sucky and I keep hating it, then really it's kind of maybe it's my fault for not embracing it and turning it around. And as you said before, with the excitement and the nervousness is the way that I interpret it and how can I be okay with that? So that's something that I've been working on a lot myself, um, particularly this year. So, yeah, I'd love to hear um, your experience on that as well. Yeah, look, I th- and I think what a, what a great way to approach it because I think the, the challenge with some of these situations, and it sounds like you're making some good progress there for yourself. I'm trying. Is- yeah, well, I guess what you've acknowledged there is that this is a task, you've got to do it anyway. Mm. So whether you do it and hate it or whether you do it and find another way to redefine it for yourself, you're going to be doing it anyway. So the the lens through which you view it makes a big difference to how that that purpose, you know, that particular task is experienced. So if, if I can, if it's okay, if I can yeah. throw a question to you. So in terms of your bookkeeping, which yes. is, um, I, I have a similar kind of psychological <laughs> approach to my accounting and bookkeeping, which is quite ironic because my husband is actually an accountant. But anyway, um, so that's okay. We found a way to make that work in my household. I might have to tell you about that off, off, off there, about how I've got through that. So um, if we think about that as something that you have to do mm. um, without you having to go into any of your personal circumstances, and if we, if we go a bit broader than the mechanics of what you've actually got to do. But the notion mm-hmm. of doing your bookkeeping, mm-hmm. why do you need to do your bookkeeping? Why does someone yes. have to do bookkeeping? The reason behind it, yes, uh, so that we can keep functioning as a, as a proper business, as a company, and keep 
doing our work to keep creating more of an influence with the young people that we work with here in Australia uh, and so that we can create some income to keep the roof above my family's head and hopefully travel and stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of like doing these numbers will help us achieve those long-term goals. Yes. So, so there's a good example of – so if you went into the task – thinking about what have I got to do, right? I've got to look at these receipts and I've got to put them into, I'm going to make it up, an Excel spreadsheet and I've got to do this and this and this and formulate and find this information and send it through to someone. Then when you think about the what of the task, it isn't much fun, you know, and I, I can think of lots of things that you and I could be doing that would be fun, you know, like it's it's not the interesting things, it's not the, it's not the things that you really love about doing about your work. But if you think about why you do it, it's actually a really important system in your life and in your business that allows you to be financially set up to care for your family and to share your resources and your information and your wisdom and deliver your programs Mm. to the people that attend it. And you couldn't do those things without this task of actually going through and doing the finances and and the accounting side of it. So I guess the reason that I kind of throw that to you is that so what it means is so then when you go, right, I'm going to sit down tonight and I'm going to do that accounting work, if the only thing you're considering as you do it is, well, I've got to, I've got to do the mechanics of this task, then it won't be very pleasurable as, as you're going through and doing it. If you see the bigger purpose around why the task is being done, you know, and this will actually, having this in place will allow me to do the good work that I do and to care for my family and to, you know, that you've got to do it anyway. So it's it's really about finding a more palatable way to think about it. Oh, absolutely. In, in fact, as you were speaking, you said, I, I remembered that way back in the early days of the podcast, we did an episode on necessity, which is exactly what you're saying. And, and this is one key area that I have struggled the most, I suppose, to find that sense of necessity, to, to connect me doing the books with that end goal. So, um, yeah, Joe, with the purpose. Yeah. So, Joe, this has been a really good reminder for me <laughs> to, oh, um, to embrace the suck. So, yeah. Thank you. And, I appreciate and, that. and that's it because the chances are, whatever the task is, you have to do it anyway. I do, mm. I do quite a lot of work out with the Defence Forces here in Townsville and, and, mm. and I'm involved with some really great resilience programs out there. And we had a group of soldiers one day who were doing a PT session and it was a tough PT session and it involved an exercise I'd never seen before and I was very, very grateful that I didn't have to do it, that I was only watching because it was <laughs> pushing a thing called, it was the, the exercise itself was called a leopard crawl log roll, which is where you are, if you can imagine, you are basically lying face down on the ground mm. uh, alongside somebody and in front of you is a very long, heavy timber pole mm-hmm. and the two of you have to kind of, um, maneuver your way across the field, pushing the pole without getting up. So you're yeah, kind of yeah. doing this whole kind of <laughs> wriggle along the ground, pushing this pole. It's tough. It's uncomfortable. It's physically very challenging. So one of the things we did in the session was we talked about the importance of the self-talk, just like you would as an athlete, because of course they are athletes mm-hmm. um, in a different kind of form. Uh, talked about how helpful some self-talk can be when you're doing an activity like that versus, um, you know, when you think about it in a way of, you know, I can't believe we have to do this, I hate this, you know, because what I'll often say to the soldiers, I'll get the PT to come in and say, this is our session and it'll usually be something tough and then I'll say to them, right, everyone stop, tell me what you were just thinking about that activity. 
because yeah. if they're sitting there looking at it going, oh, I can't believe I've got to do it, versus awesome, here's another chance for me to get fitter and to prove myself and to have another go at this and see if I can you know, be better than the last time I did it. Because as I say to the soldiers, you've got to do it anyway. You know, I've never seen a soldier be able to stand up in a PT session and say, you know, if it's all the same, I think I'll pass. I don't really feel like doing this today. Like that's not how it works in defence at all. It's not how it works with a coach either, no, you know. Yeah. So and it's a little bit like your accountant saying, well, you know, come on, we need to get this We need to get this file done. You've got to do it anyway. So given you have to do it anyway, what is a way of thinking about it that makes the task more palatable? Find the joy in it. Find the benefit in it. How does it, how does it meet your higher purpose, you know? So if there's an activity that you don't like doing, link it to your purpose, find a way, um, and that's part of that embracing the suck. You know, if you're an athlete and the session is tough, well, that's kind of the point. You know, if you, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know grammatically that's not actually correct. I put that up in a seminar once and, and an English teacher pulled me up and I said, I know it's not grammatically correct, but, <laughs> but that is exactly what I say. I, that's what, well, I think it was more about the way I spelt it. Um, so... <laughs> But, you know, I, I did that myself because I, I like to um, – I took up running two years ago, so I was interested to hear you saying about your running experience. Mm. Um, you know, if you're running your first half marathon or your first 10K, you know, and you hit a point in the race or the run or the training session and you're uncomfortable, well, that's probably why you got up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do it. You know, mm. like if it was if – you, if you got to the end of your training session and said, oh, it wasn't that lovely, you know, then I think you probably, you know, you know, your coach, if you have one, is not going to be that thrilled with what it is that you've done. So if it is uncomfortable in some of those situations, particularly the physical ones, well, that's kind of the point. Recently I tried this um, this gym, F45. I gave it a go over the holidays and there were some days I'd turn up and just um, be dreading the session coming up. So I relied on that idea of turn it from a stress into a challenge. Yes. And so when I'm doing the running and thinking about it as a challenge, not a stress, and then even in terms of the bookkeeping, I should probably look at that too as a challenge instead of a stress, you know, looking at how much can I get through um, tonight in this hour instead of going, oh, I don't want to have to give an hour to it, but look at it as a challenge instead. Oh, absolutely. And, and almost in some ways, you could almost set yourself some goals around it, couldn't you? Yeah. Obviously, you want to do it carefully and get it right. You could also say, well, in 30 minutes' time, I'll be, you know, another half hour closer to getting this done and I wonder how quickly I can do it. And and the other thing that you know is even with those less pleasant tasks, gee, it feels good when they're done. That's so, nice. you know, that's another way of kind of looking at it and thinking about, you know, how good is it? Or maybe even, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying and then I'll, there'll be a little reward for me at the end of it. I get to go and, you know, watch some rubbish TV or something or, like mm. you said, enjoy a glass of wine or maybe do that while you're doing it. But, you know, I think... With a lot of these scenarios in our life, if you've got to go through it anyway, try and find a way to make it more palatable for yourself so that then your emotional experience is more positive and then your overall experience of it will will be better. Yeah, nice one. Yeah, just like listening to a podcast while I mow the lawn. Yes. <laughs> I mean, do, yeah, do yeah, that's, 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 that's like right. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then so if I can pull out one more 
chapter from your book, if that's okay. Yes. Um, the life balance BS. Yes. Uh, I'm really trying to work on on creating some sense of balance uh, at yes. the moment. And some day, some weeks it wins and some weeks I don't feel like I've won at all with that. Um, uh, how? What can we do to really enhance or the – well, obviously, I suppose you've got here life balance BS, so maybe it's not possible. Like, um, what, what do we do about that? Yes, it's it's such a good question. And, and it's one of those things because, interestingly, my experience working with athletes is what athletes often hear is people saying to them, you've got to find balance, you've got to have a balanced life, you know. Um, and my experience with athletes, particularly at the elite level, is that it's quite challenging mm. to get to the top of the pile to be at the pinnacle, you know, right up there at the, at the apex and have all your ducks in a row. So, you know, if we think that we can take our lives and if, you know, I, I, I prefer to see life as, as being a, a whole thing rather than necessarily putting it into pigeonholes, but let's pigeonhole it for the moment for the sake of it. You know, if we mm-hmm. think about our relationships, um, our employment or our work, our sense of spirit, our financial side of our lives, the social, our health, our mind, um, you know, and obviously our, our, our physical domains as well, you know, getting all of those and giving those equal attention, you know, I think I think is quite a challenging thing to do. And I don't think that the athletes that I've worked with who really do excel in their sport mm-hmm. particularly have balanced lives, you know, in terms of how we actually def- define what balance might be Mm. and so what I say and I think what it does is I think sometimes for some athletes what I've seen is that notion of and I'm going to use a word I don't like here which is the word should but the message that athletes get is you should have a balanced life you know you are trying to be an elite level athlete and you should be working on your career and you should probably be studying at uni as well and don't forget your family and you know all these sorts of things Mm. and so then there comes and whenever we should on ourselves um there comes a lot of pressure yes and then usually we don't you know accomplish the should and then we get a lot of guilt and you know if ever there's a waste of time it's guilt so what i often talk to athletes about is okay tell me about the aspects of your life at this point in time that are important to you you know and that someone might say look for me at the moment it's not the study goals or yes i do need to get a bit of you know I, i often find elite athletes if they're younger that there may be less of an emphasis on, say, their their career post-sport, which makes sense. But when you get an athlete who's 28, 29, and I'm thinking, you know, rugby league and sports such as those, it becomes very important and, and, and the emphasis that they put on that because they know that their career is potentially coming to an end. Mm-hmm. So it becomes more important. And they couldn't see that when they were 18. Um, and they often say, gee, I wish I'd seen that when I was 18. But, you know, the, the benefits of hindsight. So what I often talk to athletes about is to talk about Tell me about the aspects of your life that are important to you at this point in time. Tell me how you think you're going with those. How much energy are you putting into them given that they're important to you? Are you meeting your needs? So rather than, than and maybe it's, it's more a question of the semantics of it, but I often say to athletes, I don't think it's so much about finding balance in your life, but in the aspects of your life that are important to you right now, you want to find that synergy mm-hmm. in your life. So you want to be able to sit there content with, okay, so I do want to spend a bit of time studying and it's important that I spend some time doing it, but actually, you know what, in the scheme of things, I need to drop that back to one subject, 
because that's what I can manage at the moment given the importance of my sport at the moment and I'm needing to spend this much time doing it or whatever it is. Mm. Or it might be that, you know, right now as an athlete I need to I need to get some income. It doesn't actually really matter what it is at this point in time. I just need some money. So it might be working in something that isn't particularly what you're going to be doing long term. So I think we can put a lot of pressure on ourselves saying that we have to have a balanced life. Mm. Um, and I think that really crosses into where we sit with our values too and what's important yeah. for us. So I'm really keen for the message that I don't necessarily think that the balanced life is an attainable thing and I don't think that's a problem. I think what it is is that what we all need to be aware of are the elements of our lives that are important to us at this point in time, bearing in mind that they change out through the lifespan and then just trying to seek out the synergy about, you know, what's important to me right now, what's urgent for me to deal with right now and how are things sitting for me. And it's usually when, when you don't have that synergy that, that that's when it probably needs a bit more attention. In the background, you could hear my dog, Bailey. I could. Uh, out of all the interviews we've ever done and all the episodes, we've he's never barked once, but uh, today oh, is his day. He's so saying ev- hello today. Well, that's well, right. It's nice to hear from him. That's right. So, everyone, that was Bailey, and you might hear him a little bit more too as we wrap up. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so, Joe, th- looking at the different chapters, there's so many things I'd want to ask you about, um, but I'm really aware of time. We've been going longer than I said that we would, so sorry about that. But um, as I said, I really do geek out on this stuff. Like there's more that you talk about in your book about the people in your corner, the gratitude, attitude, you know, enjoying the ride, all that. So I really do recommend to all of our listeners to, you know, when your book is released, I'll put it out on social media when it is released to really um, get one and, and have a read because there's a lot of great content in this book. Oh, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. We're actually going to a pre-release fairly soon at, at a discounted price. So so yeah. I'll, I'll let you know about the link and then your listeners can get it a little bit cheaper as well which will be good fantastic that sounds great so if our listeners would like to get in contact with you what would be the best way for them to do that well as long as they can remember my name they'll be able to find me so i've, <laughs> I've got my website which is dr joe lukens which mm-hmm. is J- dr dr j-o-l-u-k-i-n-s um dr joe lukens.com um but uh, you can also find me on facebook under dr joe lukens on twitter and instagram and all the and linkedin and all the all the usual flavors of social media so i would love to connect with with some of your listeners there and very happy to you know get a message from them or a, a hello so there's i've got some resources and things there up on my my new website i'm a bit excited about my website because it's new it's actually coming out today awesome. um so that's that's great so i would love to connect with your listeners um through there if they want to come over and say hello fantastic i'll put those links in our show notes and maybe if some of our listeners want to send a, a congratulations in, in terms of how well your teams are doing <laughs> the teams you work with you know, <laughs> uh, maybe they can do that as well but uh joe i love asking all of our guests what their definition of doing life better would mean so joe with all of your experience with the work that you do what's it mean to you to do life better oh it's such a great question i i you mentioned to me the, the other day that we we would talk about this and i was thinking about it and i've listened i've listened to um many of the other great answers that a lot of your other guests have done and thought, oh, i wish i i wish i could have got in with that one that was a, <laughs> was a great one um look for me i think there's many things that we can do to do our lives better mm. um and doing life better and i think for me having and awareness, being able to identify your values, I think is really, really helpful because if our values are at our core 
And when our behaviours are consistent with our values, it really sets us up well to to have a life that we do well. So, you know, for example, if, if, if your value is compassion or generosity or you're community-minded or you're competitive, whatever those values are, mm-hmm. when your behaviours are consistent with your values, I think that that sits well with us and that's when you kind of get that internal harmony and you feel – and that gives you your best opportunities um, to live your life um, in the best possible way. Um, and it's interesting because people often say to me, you know, Joe. How do I know what my values are? You know, I, they're so inherent. I, don't, I can't, couldn't even tell you what they what they are. And I, you know, and it's tricky because sometimes you don't know what your values are until somebody, you know, crosses them and asks you to do something that's not consistent with your values. So I think that that opportunity to think about times when you live consistently with your values and perhaps those times when you didn't mm. is really useful. And then so we can be mindful that our behaviours are consistent with our values. I think for me. I'm doing my life better when, when I'm doing those things. Thanks, Joe. That, that's such an important point about making sure that we are truly living in, in line with our values. So thanks for that. Um, so in terms of your challenge for the week, what's one thing that our listeners can do, the Do Life Better community can do this week to help them do their life even better? Oh, great. I was, uh, again, I, was, I had all these things that I thought I could say, but so I thought what, what would it... What would be most helpful? Because I've been I've been uh, been emphasising the the benefits of, of thinking in a helpful way. Mm. So what I would love the listeners to think about um, over the next week, um, but this is certainly something you can continue to do. Is I would like you to write for yourself a recipe, um, and the recipe that I would like you to write for yourself is your recipe for doing life better. So one of the things that I find as a psychologist is that people will um, sometimes come and talk to you about how things are going for them because things aren't going so well. Mm -hmm. And I'll often say to them, okay, so tell me about a time when life was going well. Mm -hmm. What did it look like? And it's at that moment, it's like they're telling me a recipe. So we each have within us a recipe that we follow when our life goes well. And these are the behaviours and the things that we think about that help to, I guess, if you like, bake the cake um, that comes out the way we want it to. So in your recipe, there might be things like going to bed early. Part of your recipe might be getting up in the morning and doing some physical activity. Part of your recipe might be about... Um, spending some time out in the backyard with the dog and the tennis ball, which is, I think, what your dog wants you to do right now. Um, It might be about, you know, part of my recipe for success is when I get up in the morning and I write myself a to-do list about what I'm going to do today. You know, now some of those things I've said, some people might say, oh, no, that's not what I do. The important thing is, is that everyone's recipe is different. What's important is that you know what your recipe is and then you follow it. Because when you follow it, that helps you to, to do your life better um, and, it you know, it really helps to build your resilience. So knowing what the things are for you in your life that helps you to do well is really, really important. And, and I would suggest write them down. So it's not just have them floating around in your head. Write down. If you had to define your recipe for success, what would it be? And it can be the little things. And it can be the big things. Um, But when you're able to do that, you really set yourself on a path of feeling good within yourself and then achieving the goals that you set for yourself, whatever those might be. Awesome. I like that idea about the recipe. Yes. And look, it it works well and that's what I do with athletes all the time. I don't always necessarily 
you know, define it to them as a recipe. But I usually do when I say, what does it look like when you play well? You know, and they tell you all the things and you say, well, what have you stopped doing? And they go, oh, well, yes, I've done, you know, stopped doing this, this and this. So if we all within ourselves, and then the beauty of this exercise is, is listeners can do this for themselves. Perhaps if they're in a family unit, what's the recipe for success for your family? What does it look like? You know, and it might be little stuff like we all pitch in and wash up, but it might also be, and we all go and do an activity together on the weekends. If your listeners are working in an organisation, what is your recipe for success? You know, because the, the, this comes from the world of sport because I'm always saying to coaches is what's going well? What does it look like when your team is successful? Because that's you're essentially saying what's the recipe? So it's a really good model and you can apply it right across the different levels of your life. Awesome. Awesome. I'll definitely be keeping that in mind, Joe, as I – not just this week, as you said, but um, long-term as well, that idea about recipe because, you know, success leaves clues, which is exactly what your book's all about as well. So taking the success of these athletes, um, taking the clues from what they've achieved and, and their habits and so on, and then using that to help everyone else as well. So, Joe, thank you for your time today and thank you for the work that you are doing, again, as I said, to really help find the clues that enable these athletes to be highly successful and translate them in a way to help everyone else do our life even better. So, um, Joe, thank you very much for your time today. And, again, really appreciate the work you're doing, not just with our sporting teams but also with the community um, in terms of that positive psychology and helping everyone enhance their own recipes for success. So, again, Joe, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having me and, and have a great time tonight. <laughs> we will Joe thank you thank you so there we go folks and please remember her challenge for the week which is create your recipe for success remember success leaves clues there's been many moments in your life when you have been highly successful happy and fulfilled and there's clues there so create your recipe of success so you can continue repeating those moments throughout your life Thank you very much for sticking to this one. As I said at the start, I know it was a longer one and I'm sure you gained so much benefit from this episode. And I'm also pretty sure that you would know a couple of people in your life who'd really benefit from this as well. So right now, get out your phone. You can actually share it as a text or Facebook message. You can share it in so many different ways. Take out your device now. Share it with one or two people who you know will really benefit from this. Um, you'll be doing some good for them and you'll feel a little bit fulfilled because you know that you're making a difference as well. And again, it's one of those things that I am incredibly grateful for. Speaking of which, have you subscribed yet? By subscribing, you don't miss out on any future episode coming up. Please do leave me a rating and a review. At the time of recording this, I think we're up to about 63 five-star ratings and uh, there's one one-star by some dude called Jerry. I think he was having a pretty bad day that day, but anyways, Jerry, thanks for your thoughts. But for the 63 or 64 or whatever it is of you who've left five-star ratings, thank you very much. I'm incredibly grateful for that. And of course, as always, I hope this chat today can help you do today and your life just that little bit better. And for now, I can't wait to join you next time. Oh,
Thanks again for listening to the Do Life Better podcast. And have you subscribed yet? By subscribing to this podcast, that enables you to get notifications every single time a new episode is released. In your podcast app, you can find all the show notes for every episode. And if you'd like to get in contact, you can do so via email at hello at projecthatch.com.au. That's hello at projecthatch.com.au. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast, share it with someone you think would benefit from these messages. And now it's time to get out there and do life better.